0: We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world, and we would love to have your support as well. Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the "Become a Patron" button. Because a supportive community is a strong community. Welcome back to another episode of Be Our Guest here on Musical Theater Radio. I am your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. When I say our next guest can do it all, it, it sounds like a bit of a hyperbole, but... I think our next guest might come pretty close to achieving this. Uh, She is the producer of the musicals uh, Be More Chill, Broadway Bounty Hunter, and Love and Hate Nation, creative and programming director at Feinstein's 54 Below, author of the Untold Stories of Broadway book series, creator of the Jonathan Larson product, historian consultant on the film version of Tick, Tick, Boom, and named recipient of the 2020 Lincoln Center Emerging Artist Award, and created something i am very interested in knowing more about if it only ever even runs a minute a concert series celebrating rare songs from underappreciated musicals a thing that is close to my heart Uh, the only thing i didn't see was astronaut on their linkedin page but i could have just missed that and we'll find (laughs) out if there's an astronaut in there Uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show jennifer ashley tepper jennifer jen welcome
1: Thank you so much for having me and for the the beautiful introduction. Well, thank you for writing it on your website.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) it makes life so much easier sometimes. (laughs) But so I know I went through all of that stuff, but we'd like to get to know our guests before we delve into all the the deeper stuff. Um, I always ask for a 30 second bio. So who is Jen in 30 seconds?
1: That's a great question, especially because most of us are like verbose. Um, so I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, just a very theater obsessed kid who was really like, you know, fascinated by musical theater history and new writers and old writers. Um, and I feel really lucky that I get to do things like work at 54 Below, work on Broadway, work um, in all these different capacities to celebrate underappreciated musicals and history and kind of bring all those things I love together.
0: Wonderful. That was. Hey, you have an extra nine seconds. Is there anything you want to add? <laughs>
1: never been told that in my life I'm always like the longest
0: answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right awesome. so but again I always like to take it back is your family a, a, a theater family an arts family or are you kind of the black sheep of the family?
1: You know, um, everyone in my family basically works in medicine, other than my sister and I. My sister's an entertainment attorney now, but, um, you know, everyone loved theater. So it was kind of both. You know, I was taken to a lot of uh, touring musicals in Florida growing up. Um, my dad's like one of those doctors that's always like singing to his patients. Um, it was very much encouraged and very much like, you know, supported, although no one in my family had ever worked in theater. Yeah,
0: How useful is it to have an entertainment lawyer in the family?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes. My sister's amazing. And so her and I are very much like the next generation. Like we went into the arts.
0: Nice. Nice. Um, did you always want to be in theater growing up or was there something else you thought about doing maybe medicine or something else?
1: (laughs) Never thought about that. Wouldn't be good at it. But, um, yeah, you know, I went to theater camp locally when I was nine years old. And from that point on, it was just like theater, 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 Um, started like asking for eight cast albums every Hanukkah, was like never not seen, you know, either wearing a theater shirt or like listening to CD. It was all of that. Um, And I really never thought about doing much else. I only applied to NYU and I said I would chain myself to my room and just like reapply if I didn't get in forever. So (laughs) I, I was very much like New York City or bust.
0: Well, well, obviously uh, you got in there because you didn't get chained. You're not chained up still in Florida. So uh,
1: to like guidance counselors when I was 18, I was like, I'm just going to chain myself to my bedpost until I get in and I won't apply anywhere else.
0: <laughs> nice. Well, you know, that determination, it it, it helps to get in. Um, what was that process like going to going up from from Boca Raton in Florida up to NYC?
1: yeah so i as mentioned like i was really lucky to see a lot of local theater growing up but i really only got to visit new york three times before i moved there which is a crazy thing when you think about it for an 18 year old i was always so jealous of people who grew up you know in jersey and on long island um who really like knew the city better than i did but i had three very like magical um trips to new york when i was a teenager and then you know they plant you in an nyu dorm they're like here's your class schedule And the city really is your campus. Like it sounds like a cliche, but I do feel like I learned just as much from, you know, I would get like free tickets, whatever free tickets NYU was offering, I would get. And then I would take notes on multiple performances of shows, like as I was (laughs) taking advantage of the free tickets. Like I did um, so many internships. I volunteered at so many theater related functions. I kind of just did whatever I could do to like learn and get in there in the professional theater community while I was at NYU. Um, I did my own shows on campus. It was very much like, um, I, I didn't go to Gallatin which is the one where you create your own major. I went to Tisch, but I feel like I did create my own major, um, you know, in the, through the back door way of doing it. Nice.
0: So what did you go to Tisch for exactly?
1: I went to Tisch for dramatic writing, which um, you know I loved theater and I loved writing. I didn't want to be a playwright, but I was like, here's um, you know a department where I can kind of hone my skills in different ways. And it was odd, you know, everyone else there wanted to write the next Big Lebowski or the next. You know, it was a department basically full of like screenwriters. Um, yeah. And it, it was interesting. It, I think it actually motivated me more to find my people in terms of like musical theater appreciators. Um, but I did so. One of my hero of heroes. Um, is Ted Chapin, who I just—he wrote my favorite theater book, *Everything Was Possible*, the *Birth of the Musical Follies*. Um, and when I was 20, I wrote him a letter and asked if I could intern for him at the Rodgers and Hammerson Organization, where he was then the head of. And um, and I did, and it was like very, you know, I been very lucky to be mentored by him in various ways over the years but my thesis in college because I was like I don't actually want to be a screenwriter here I am trying to learn about all these different things at NYU I adapted his book everything was possible into a screenplay that's truly the worst screenplay ever it's not good um but I ran into him at a Tony Awards event and we always joke about it and he's like I gotta see that screenplay and I'm like it's been 15 years we're never gonna take it out of the drawer
0: Is it one of those lost media things that no one's going to ever see?
1: (laughs) Yes. It was just a lot of me being like, page seven, Michael Bennett walks in. And it was like, it was a very, as a historian and as someone who supports writers and supports new musicals and new works, it's like, it was a very helpful exercise, but it's like, it was just bad. So glad I did it. Glad I learned from it.
0: Well, that's the thing, right? Even if something isn't... Uh, great, you learn from it, right? And and you you grow, so that it makes sense. Did Did you ever want to be on stage?
1: You know, I loved doing it at summer camp and in high school, but I never thought it was going to be a career. I was always one of those people who like was so excited to be part of a cast and like loved all the rituals that go along with like, you know, being in an ensemble of a musical. Um, you know, like my high school did for afford- my high I went to a like public high school, but that had a ton of money for the theater department because we were near every retirement home in South Florida and had an incredible drama teacher who okay. would like have them all buy tickets. So by the time I went there, it was like we were doing eight shows in our cities theater and like we had all this money I mean like you know we spent the money on like sets and costumes and you know we did 42nd street and we all had free tap lessons for an entire year so um, yeah it was like a really cool place to be and I loved being part of that and I participated in things like thespians um, which were my life but once I got to college I wasn't like oh I want to perform but I always did love being uh, you know like hosting events and talking about nerdy musical theater facts and stuff like that from the stage so um I was excited to like speak publicly but not be you know an actor
0: wow your high school is 42nd street I, I think my high school barely could get people to enough together to do um little shop which only <laughs> has like nine people but wow that's incredible it's very cool so once you graduated from from Tisch what, what where did you go from there Jennifer in so- the world of New York
1: <laughs> yeah, I was super lucky in that my I had again like all these internships, most of which were not internship programs, but like you know working for people who I wrote to myself. And I was really lucky that I interned with the um, writers of Title of Show, the musical. Mm-hmm. Um, that show was off Broadway while I was in college, and I like was obsessed with it. All of my fellow NYU students were obsessed with it, and I wrote to the writers and I invited them to a project that I was doing that we hoped to include some material from Title of Show in. Um, and that didn't quite work out because the music was still being published, but. We stayed in touch and basically they were you know back in 2008 2007 actually um they were really the first Broadway show to be like we're gonna make a web series you know Mm -hmm. it was before the era of like everyone has a YouTube show and so their web series was like here's how we're going to Broadway and this is our path to Broadway um and they hired me as their assistant to um help them with all those videos which meant I did everything from like you know fetch this shirt for Cheyenne Jackson to like help us rewrite this part of you know the episode. Um, so I spent a year doing that. And then title of show actually ended up going to Broadway the summer after I graduated college. So Michael Burress, the director, hired me as his assistant um, for like, you know, so I had a real position on the show when it moved to the Lyceum, um, which was like the greatest, most surreal experience ever. It, was, um, it inspired my books. It inspired if It Only Runs Minute. It was just like this incredible, incredible time. Um, and after that, I, I really spent Um, at least a year and a half if not two years applying for so many jobs I didn't get and like doing the like New York City hustle of like babysitting and tutoring and peeing a workshop for one week and assisting this person for a week and then going back to babysitting it was a lot of um, New York City you know post NYU grad hustle um, before I had my first like full-time theater job which was working for Ken Davenport.
0: Nice and what did you do with Ken and in New York?
1: Yeah. So I worked for Ken for three years in his office um, and I was the director of marketing and promotions. Um, and it was so great to work for a producer. Like all I ever wanted was to work for a Broadway producer at that point. Cause I thought that would be such a great next step for me. Um, and we did uh, most, the, the, the thing we did that was like the most memorable and took up the most time was we did the Broadway revival of Godspell. Um, so, you know, it ran at circle in the square and we, um, I got to be involved with everything that office and Ken is amazing because he does everything in house. Um, especially I can speak to what he did then, but um, everything from like marketing to, um, you know, general management, to artistic development, to casting, it was like, you know, so many things were happening in that office and Godspell was really like his baby. So um, I learned about every element of like that production as we put it together. And it was really like, that was very cool too. Um, So I was there for three years before I started working at 54 Below.
0: Nice. Well then let's talk about 54 Below because, uh, you know, as as someone in the theater scene who, lives in Toronto, you hear about it, but you don't until you go to it or you talk to people have been, you just hear about it. So tell us a little bit about um, 54 Below, uh, what it is, and then how you got involved with it
1: sure um so 54 below uh is broadway's supper club that's our little subtitle um and this year's our 10th anniversary year so we've been open for 10 years um on 54th street right underneath the good old studio 54. um and basically i've been there for about nine years so i'll tell you what it is and how i came on board um the owners of 54 below are broadway producers who they became really excited about the idea of like an old fashioned supper club that brought like new Broadway talent, older Broadway talent, um, had really nice fine dining. It wasn't like, oh, you're going to see your friend do a concert or cabaret and you're eating pretzels. It was like a really wonderful dining experience. Um, And they opened it uh, in 2012 and I came on board in 2013. Their original programming director was a man, Phil Bond, who I knew through doing concerts at the Beachman. Uh I produced a lot of If It Only Runs Minute shows and shows with Joy Connors who I still work with. And um, Phil was the director there and had worked with me. And so when 54 Below was working looking for a new programming director, he recommended me. And we also had just done um, the Joy Connors Christmas show, which has about 80 cast members, is like this crazy, um, insane show with, uh, you know, dozens of Christmas characters and snow and just like things flying at your face. Um, we had just, pro- I had just produced, it at 54 Below the first year that it was open Um, so they knew who I was and they were like oh yeah bring in that girl who produced that crazy show if that's who you're recommending great Um, so that was how I I became involved and what was really insane was that um, it was 2013 which was the year that I wrote my first book The Untold Stories of Broadway and so I always just call it like it was three months where I don't think I ever slept because I was still at my old job I was starting to run 54 Below and I was working on a book for the first time which had like a very clear due date and also involved like interviews and it was such a crazy time but um yeah so i've been at 54 below since 2013 um it's really crazy that it's our 10th anniversary year um and we just were very lucky to be awarded the special tony honor this year
0: oh nice well congratulations on that that's fantastic mm-hmm. so so how how does it work because um, again I, i'm trying to picture it but until i get down there and actually experience it so you say it, it, it's a supper club so you is, is, yeah, please describe, I'm, I can't even figure out how it works.
1: Yeah, so um, we do, right now we do two shows, and I pre-pandemic, it was three, but We'll forget about that for now. Yeah. But so we do two shows every night, um, at seven and nine thirty, which are almost always two totally different shows. Huh. Um, meaning that we do fourteen shows a week, meaning that we do you know seven hundred plus shows a year. Um, and you know basically our schedule is shaped around our headliners who play the week. Um, so for example, you know like next week it'll be Brian Stokes Mitchell at seven p.m. all week, and at nine thirty, you know it's exciting stuff like new writers, new musicals, um, performers who are um, you know just getting started or you know different kinds of creative mm-hmm. combinations of um basically at 7 pm we have our like higher ticket price demographic and at 9:30 we can charge a little less and bring in a little younger audiences or a different demographic yeah. so usually it's that mm-hmm. um but there's so many variations you know we do we've done like hundreds of obscure musicals in concert we do nights that are like 54 sings britney spears or 54 sings irving berlin like everything in between um there's so much that like I made a bunch of lists of like our different categories of shows with what shows were in that category for our 10th anniversary. And there were so many that fit no category, you know, it's like, you look at the 54 Blow calendar, you're like, oh, there's an 18 piece big band. And um, you know, there's a show where they're recreating Murder, She Wrote. And you know, there's a show where it's, you know, Audra McDonald and Will Swenson. It's really like just so many different things, but all centered around the Broadway community. So um, it's almost always Broadway artists or Broadway centric in some way um with you know fun variations every so often
0: that'd be so exciting to see just yeah like the variation of so much different stuff you could go in and see in the same day you know like you said uh, brian stokes mitchell and then this rare you know maybe scandinavian musical that they're in new york trying to workshop or something it's just it's, it's very cool that way i'd love to know some of the 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 seven o'clock people we'll just call them <laughs> the headliners and then maybe some of the people that you know you saw for the first time at the nine thirty slot and you, you've watched grow and, and make
1: it Sure. Um, You know, there have been so many. Uh, What's crazy is like, there are so many collaborations, people who are like, oh, I'm working with this musical director for the first time, you know, at 54 Below. And then I like see a couple years later, that's their musical director for their show that's coming to Broadway. You know, it's there's so many first collaborations. Um, You know, there's everyone from, like Ariana DeBose was doing shows in the basement when she was not like, you know, barely on Broadway. Ben Platt did his own show at 54. Like, uh, you know, tickets were $40. He was just getting started out. Um, Bonnie Milligan's a big one who like, you know, her star is on the rise and she has done a million things for years at 54 Below. Um, our 7pm artists are, you know, also diverse in terms of like what material they do and all kinds of other things, age, race, gender. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is um, all shaped around the ticket prices being higher at seven. So um, yeah, there's such a big list at this point. Um, some of our big ones, you know, Patti LaPone. Um, we have Jennifer Holiday coming up which is really exciting wow. Jeremy Jordan um there's there's honestly just so many um in this next like couple months in addition to Stokes um let me see who do we have coming up um Emily Skinner who's someone like I've loved forever Lucy or we have um uh Kate Baldwin and Aaron Lazar just did a very acclaimed production of Bridges of Madison County out mm-hmm. of town and they're doing a duo show so oh. sometimes we get to kind of like reunite people to do something they might not have gotten to see in new york um so yeah it's it's a different headliner every week and we are always like bringing new headliners into the fold
0: what's the what's the size of the house like what's the capacity
1: um it's about 140
0: that's nice and intimate (laughs) like Wow. yeah
1: it's definitely it's you know like you're watching jason robert brown and you're literally two feet away from him you're not even six feet away you're like right on top of the piano
0: <laughs> wow that's incredible um yeah i think anybody who's in new york and is in love with musical theater and wants to discover or just you know get in depth definitely check that out um I'd love to know more about your producing because you said you were with, you were with Ken and you learned about producing. How did you get on to be more chill and, and, and those other shows?
1: Yeah, so I, um you know, when I was just a, like, NYU student slash young 20-something starting out, I was so in love with Joe Iconis's work. I discovered it, um like, on a demo tape in a back office at the York Theater when I interned there when I was 19 years old and was like, who is this guy who's writing these songs? Like, I have to go to see one of his concerts or, or find out who he is. And um I was so into, like, his work and was just, like, honestly a fan. Like, I have, like, a fangirl picture with him from before we ever really met. Um And then... And one of our producers on Title of Show was actually producing a show of Joe, iconuses. and I was like, can I be a gopher? Can I get coffee? Like, can I just, you know, do the thing? And so I got to assist on Things to Ruin, which is a show of Joe's that now has a cast recording and is licensed, but it was being done at second stage. And I really got to know him and his whole like family of artists. Um, And from that point on, you know, have worked with him in so many capacities, like whether it's producing a Broadway show or, you know, dramaturging a show out of town or, you know, producing his shows at 54 Below. um, We kind of, we spent years just trying, you know, to get anywhere together. You know, it's like um, we did a number of like off-Broadway shows, out-of-town tryouts. Um, Be More Chill was a very unique situation where, um, you know, the show was at Two River in New Jersey, um, the wonderful River Theater. And um, it sadly got a not great review in the New York Times. And so no one was interested in moving it anywhere, basically. Um, And I've been in that situation multiple times with Joe um, and know from having, you know, friendships with many new writers, it's pretty standard where, um, you know, the show, everyone was really proud of it, felt really good about it. The New York Times review comes out and everyone literally canceled their tickets. Like the next morning, it was like every producer who was even getting on a train to New Jersey, because you can't sell tickets without that New York Times review if you're a new musical like that, and unless you can get a nonprofit on board or a commercial producer. So it really was dead in, in the water. And there were these really wonderful donors at Two River Theater, Bob and Joan Recknitz, mm-hmm. who spent $100,000 to say, we're gonna record this, you know, cast album, um, regardless of what happens with the show, we're giving all the money so that this show can be remembered and hopefully it'll get licensed someday and whatever happens, like we're letting it get recorded. And that recording, you know, sat around for like a year or two before like people started discovering it and it got wrapped up in what's now, you know, kind of known as like the the algorithm really uh, people loved it. And so the internet told more people to listen to it. It was, you know, all the classic spotify and apple music and all of that um and from that like it gained this crazy audience where once it it was actually licensed partially because um we did it in concert at 54 below a few months after it closed to be like well, somebody license this or do it um and it did get licensed and so there were all these high school productions that like we would hear from high school theater directors who were like people flew in from japan to see like this high school production because they just were eager to see any be more chill so it started getting a lot of attention and this very wonderful producer named Jerry Garing, who had done the show at um, his, in his hometown, um, he basically wanted to bring it to New York and find a way to do that. And so he and I got connected, and we together um, were able to produce it off Broadway at the Signature Theater, and then on Broadway at the Lyceum. And you know, like we sold out every single performance at the Signature Theater. Um, before we even started performances like it was such a wild ride because it had gained that audience um so you know it was really exciting to have the opportunity to take all of these connections I'd made for 10 years with Joe whether it was um you know a connection I'd made with a potential investor that like when we were able to finally bring a show in like you know I could reach out to or whether it was you know someone we could hire in the music department who'd been doing all of the Joy Connors concerts for years and now got a Broadway credit um it was so wonderful to kind of bring all of that together um but it was a very you know unique circumstance and I don't nothing like that will happen exactly that way ever again um and yeah it was it was a wonderful experience but it was also um certainly you know we still did not get a great New York Times review and like ended up not being able to have um a long run because of it and it so it just you know it was such a unique of its own time moment
0: (laughs) and and that's just one more proof that reviews are just how do you like I'd read them and then just take them with a grain of salt because an opinion, Like I, and then I don't know how you feel about reviews, obviously on this one, you're not happy with it, but. Um,
1: but yeah, it's just, I mean, it's one person's opinion. And yeah. certainly there have been like reviewers that I've appreciated because they've showed me what a show was when I wasn't there. I love reading reviews sometimes from, yeah. you know, past decades or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's really one person's opinion. Um, but the whole, you know, basically like system of reviews is predicated on us all listening to them. Um, and people do, you know, and even if only half of the audience does, you still can't survive with only half, you know, it's like, yeah. it's just such a um, tricky thing. So it's really, we're so dependent on just a few people's opinions.
0: I know. I, I hate when people ask me, well, what did you think of the show? Well, it doesn't matter what I think, honestly, just go see it and, and make yeah. a decision for yourself. Just support the arts and, and go see the show. And then- Totally so awesome um well congratulations on be more chilly it kind of took off (laughs) just a little bit so that's and and it's always great to have backers like the that couple you mentioned to support the cast recording it's it's so important to have uh benefactors and and helpers and
1: create and was really special that you know like there were so many people that loved joe's work or loved the work of other folks that put the show together and um spent years hoping that it would go to new york or go to broadway not just be more chill but any number of his shows and so so many of our backers were people like the reckonses who had like a you know who knew people involved and who were like very much like emotionally invested in the show Nice.
0: Um, love to talk a little bit about Jonathan Larson. Obviously, you, you know, you put together the Jonathan Larson project. Uh, you mentioned that you were a consultant on Tick, Tick, Boom. What is it about Jonathan Larson's work and, and how did you get, you know, so involved with it?
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, I was like a rent obsessed teenager. You know, I was like just maybe old enough right when it came out to sort of appreciate it. But like, you know, all of us like theater kids singing those songs before we really knew it it man. Um, so I was, you know, I loved his work from a very young age. Um, and I loved Tick-Tick Boom as well. Like I always loved Ren and Tick-Tick Boom, which, you know, came on tour to Florida when I was also in high school. Um, and so I, um, when Tick-Tick Boom was at Encore City Center, I was part of a, an artist group that was doing events in the lobby before performances. Um, and I basically pitched if what I did as my event could be this like unheard Jonathan Larson concert where I would put together folks singing a couple of his really lesser known works. So, you know, obviously not from Rent or Tick-Tick Boom, but um, beyond that, and I got permission to do it, and so I did this mini concert before a performance of Take which starred Lin Manuel Miranda, of course, and he, you know, came and watched us do our lobby shenanigans. Um, and from that point, which what year was that? Gosh, I think it was 2014. Um, I started talking to the Larson family and the estate about um, expanding it into a full concert evening. So I spent a couple of years doing research at the Library of Congress and elsewhere, the New York Public Library as well, um, of all of his, you know. At the Library of Congress, it was like a treasure trove where it was just so many tapes of you know things that jonathan larson recorded at age 24 in his bedroom that were the equivalent of like a voice memo today um that no one had ever heard like there were songs where i would reach out to you know a friend of his or his sister or someone and be like oh my god this song and they would be like oh yeah johnny loved that song and Mm -hmm. it got performed in this place and and sometimes i would reach out and everyone would be like we have no idea what that is so um i shortly after i started i realized i really had to listen to every single song in order to do justice to kind of a new song cycle of his unknown work. Yeah. And so it's um, been a couple of years and did the Jonathan Larson project, which was such a, um, really one of the most incredible creative experiences I've ever had of like creating this new, basically like what would be the new musical theater song cycle Jonathan Larson would have put together if he had done that, if he had been part of the generation, our generation that does that. Um, and we got to have a cast album, which has been really exciting. We've been working on some next steps, potentially for the show. Um, but Lin-Manuel knew that I had been working on that. And so very early in the tick tick boom film you know trajectory he asked me if i would come on board as a historian to help them work on it from a historic perspective based on the fact that he knew i already was starting to have all this like mega knowledge from going through the archives
0: wow so were you on set during it or was it your process before or during and after how did that work
1: um you know i was on set a little bit but it was um So impacted because of COVID, it ended up being a really fun experience where most of my work was definitely like before the movie Mm -hmm. started. Um, But uh, I got to be an extra in one of the scenes because they were eager to be like, "We want you on set," but there are such strict COVID protocols that all these people in these positions are doing remote work from the hotel and like. But if you're an extra, we can. (laughs) Very fun, Um, very fun. But um, but yeah, I spent a number of years with um, Julie O, who's one of the movie's producers, with Lynn, with Steven Levinson, who wrote the screenplay, um, you know, kind of talking to them about all kinds of real life events that impacted the the show and the story. Um, you know, the show was written by Jonathan to be a one man musical. And after his death, it was expanded into a three person musical. Mm. And then the movie has, you know, hundreds of characters. So it really expanded the story. And, you know, certain things that happened in real life that are referred to in one line in Jonathan's original Tick, Tick, Boom script might get a whole scene. Um, mm. So it was, you know, like, hey what would this person's office have looked like and hey jonathan mentions this person what was his history with that person and you know filling in a lot of the real life details and also sharing material so um i had sessions with each of the actors to say you know like oh like andrew garfield like here's a song that jonathan wrote right around the time that is the part of the show you're acting here, or part of the movie, I guess. Um, so such a theater girl, not used to even it being a movie. Um, but I got to meet with um, the actors as well and give them kind of like supplementary dramaturgical material about their characters. Um, yeah, it was a lot of like, just kind of being the resident theater history nerd. Um, I It's sort of similar to dramaturgy, but it was never, hey, something should happen in this scene because this happened in that scene. It wasn't the parts of dramaturgy that help tell the story in like a structural way it was more um kind of filling in like historic um, kind of content as we went through the process
0: is there a jonathan larson song that people should know that you love and that people might not know but should
1: yeah, I mean, there's so many. And the lucky thing was like, you know, I went through so many and ended up with the 18 that are on the Jonathan Larson project. But um, there's quite a few. There's one on that album called Hosing the Furniture that he won a bunch of fancy musical theater writer awards for at the time, but that was never recorded in his lifetime. Um, and it's like a eight minute epic about um, basically a housewife. I'll leave it at that as far as context. But um, people really know him as kind of having done one sort of, you know, like for rent <laughs> and for ticket boom. And it's, um you know, he was able to write in a lot of eclectic styles that are not on display there. So I would say that one, Um, but there's also, I mean, our finale of the John Larson project was a song called piano that was not finished. It was a song that was like unfinished. Mm-hmm. So we performed it sort of unfinished and it's like an incredibly beautiful song that every time I hear it, I'm just kind of in tears. So there's a lot on that album that I'm super proud of. Wow. That's
0: very cool. That's very cool. So let's transition then into less known songs from musicals into um if it even only runs a minute because i i love and on our station um i play all the popular stuff of course but playing these obscure shows because i was looking at your archive list of shows that you perform songs from i play like 85 percent to 90 and if i don't play it it's just because i just don't own it um I
1: love it. You're doing the good work thank oh. you for doing it Oh no!
0: Oh, I love some of this. Like one of, I forget one of the the sessions, the concerts had um, Xana Don't and um, Zombie Prom in it, and a few others. I love those two. That's just like some of my favorite shows. Those two. So I'd love to know how you came up with the concept, and um, you know what it was like, and what it is.
1: Yeah, so I should say um, the title is actually a lyric from Merrily We Roll Along, which is my favorite musical of all time. Um, which I always think it's funny because like you know, there's a revival of Merrily coming back to New York, and every time there's any like significant production of Merrily, I get at least a couple people constantly being like, "Oh, we didn't know that's what all those words were." Because there's a part of um, it's a hit where they go, "If it only even runs a minute, at least it's a wedge. It's the theater, and we're really in it, not just the edge." So that's where the, yeah. the long title comes from. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so it was around the time. Um, it was in 2010 when we started doing it And we, you know, our last one was just last year So we've been doing it for over a decade, this concert series um, And my cohort, Kevin Michael Murphy and I uh, Were both, you know, trying to find our place in the musical theater world And I would post these, like, huge Facebook albums of, like, obscure photos That I would call from, like, online archives in the New York Public Library And just be like, doesn't, don't everyone on my friends list want to look at, like, this picture of Marilyn and American Fable backstage You know, it would just be um, basically, like, internet at Nerdery and we Um, had lunch one day and we're like, how do we turn this into a concert series? And what it turned into was, um, you know, including the photos, which was really important to us and having uh, backstage images, being backstage production photos, you know, behind the scenes, whatever, being part of the show. And then also having it be a combination of um, writers and um, actors who originated work coming to recreate it. And then also new folks interpreting the material. Um, So we've actually, um, I used to say we've never repeated a musical, but. I think we've maybe repeated like three, and it's always that. It's always like, oh, we already did smile, but now one of us is friends with so and so from the original cast of smile. We have to let her come and yeah. smile. So um, we've repeated a couple shows, but really we've barely repeated any shows, which has been exciting because it's, um, you know, in almost every edition, we have at least one song that's never been recorded that, you know, Mm. we get a bootleg and we transcribe it. Um, You know, like Anthony Rapp was in, I'm sure you know, but like the show that closed in previews, Little Prince and the Aviator. Mm-hmm. when he was a kid, he played the little prince in that musical. It was never recorded. And he came and sang in runs a minute a song that he originated on Broadway as like an eight year old never recorded. And he we taught it to him from a bootleg of his eight year old <laughs> self singing it and our poor musical director being like, Oh, I think that's this note and, and transcribing. So we've had like a number of those experiences where um it's been so exciting because we also always have put all of our material on YouTube that we can, um mm-hmm. you know, so it's all out there. And a lot of it is material that people might've not known that now they love or do for an audition, or it just literally never had any recording and now it's on the internet. Um, so we're really proud of that. And we've also um, barely ever repeated a performer. So we've just had so many people be part of the concert series.
0: Well, th- yeah, there are so many shows out there that, you know, nobody knows um, except for the rare few. Yeah. Cause I'm looking at most of these going, yep. Have it on vinyl, have it on vinyl <laughs> so, and yeah, they'd never got any digital copies. Um, a lot of those I had to digitize myself so I could get them on the, on the radio. So uh, I love them. But what, what is the border? Um, when does it, when does it um, officially become um, a, a part of this or could be considered for this?
1: Such a good question. So, um, you know, one of my favorite books is not since Carrie, um, mm-hmm. by Ken Mandelbaum. And he defines like a flop, which I sometimes call an underappreciated musical as, um, it maybe was something that didn't bank back, make back its money, 300 performances or less. Those are like two of the big markers. Yeah. And so I kind of go by those, but it's, as we know, in musical theater, like it's so, you know, like if thoroughly modern Millie doesn't make its money back fully on Broadway, but it's the best musical winner and yeah. it ran for three years. Like, do we count that? Like, no we don't so it's really a weird thing where it's sort of like personal compass based um but then what's hard is like there are also shows that were definitely underappreciated musicals but then later came back in revivals and became more like you know celebrated and made money so um it's kind of some of it is like a decide for yourself based on a number of criteria (laughs) it's it's tricky sometimes
0: yeah because yeah i I, because i love playing it because like you said it's great opportunity to find new audition material, like these are songs uh-huh. nobody's singing, and there's only so many times you can hear, you know, whatever it is they're singing in there. So
1: totally. Uh, there have also there are songs that I've discovered in this that I'm just like, oh my god, like someone. Some of our discoveries have just been like, this is a song everyone should be singing in concert, kind of thing, and it's it's been exciting.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I again, one of my passions is just <laughs> finding these obscure shows, um. So. Are you doing another one this year or when do they get put on cuz I'm 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 personally curious no.
1: We went from doing them like every three months to kind of every, uh, you know, to a year, like it's it's kind of varied. And right mm-hmm. before the pandemic, we were working on our first ever themed one because we always never liked to have a theme actually. We always liked that it was like, oh, you're hearing a song from the nineties and then you're hearing a song from the forties and yeah. um, just the variety of it. But I really wanted to do one to honor, um you know, my hero Hal Prince after he passed away. So we were doing like a special Hal Prince themed edition, which mm-hmm. was really um inspiring to me and I hope to others especially because um he obviously did so many hits and so like seeing um all of his shows where he swung big and you know maybe it didn't run or maybe it didn't make money, or for whatever reason um was really interesting so we did that um it ended up being delayed for you know two years because of the pandemic and we did it in the fall last year um and yeah we definitely plan on doing another edition soon um honestly it's been tricky with um like the COVID of it all still being in the midst of the pandemic to um you know make everything happen at 54 below and still be as involved with other projects as i'd like to be so um i'm sure there'll be a point at the in the future where i'm like oh now i can go to every run some minute rehearsal so we can put another one on the calendar um but i think we'll go back to not having a theme you know i really love that it can be like just a great variety of material
0: i it's kind of sucks to be only one person right i wish you could divide yourself so you could do everything you want to do but and then you have have time to write books (laughs) like (laughs) the untold stories of, of broadway um How did you decide to write that? And tell us a little bit about that as well.
1: Yeah, so the adult stories of Broadway, I was always very obsessed with like the theaters themselves and Mm -hmm. being someone who grew up far away, um, teaching themselves about Broadway, you know, from Florida. I, you know, by the first time I walked into the Imperial Theater, I always say that like, oh, like I'm here for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels because that's what was playing when I moved there. But like, oh, Dreamgirls was here and oh, Pippin was here. And oh, that's where they did this during Drude. And um, I really was obsessed with the theaters themselves. And then during title of show, um, when I got the chance to like live at the Lyceum every day and like explore backstage and really go like, oh, there's a secret pass door. And oh, like this is built like this, because it was built in 1903. Um, I became super fascinated by the idea of stories from people who had worked at theaters and like how they were connected um I remember exploring underneath like a dressing room table and finding signatures from like everyone who had worked there for the past oh, wow. 20 years and been in that dressing room so it was things like that um and I was thinking like oh I want to do like a version of at this theater but with people's personal stories and memories um and I kept it on the back burner for a while being like oh this is a book I'll write you know when I'm older and have had more experience and then a couple of years after that maybe like four years after that um uh would be publisher came to one of my if it only runs minute shows, which I also like, you know, write the script of and here's how we're gonna tell all these fun facts. um, And asked if I wanted to pitch her a book. And I was like, Oh, I I do have a book idea. And so um, it was this very new publishing company called dress circle that has now published like Seth Rudesky's books and um, a bunch of other stuff. uh, That's great. And so I pitched it to them. And it turned into this like, Oh, we're gonna need six volumes in order to cover all the theaters. But let's start on volume one. Um, And I've done, you know, 300 with different folks and it's you know actors and producers and writers but also stagehands and musicians and company managers and door people um, basically anyone who works like in the Broadway theater itself um, so it's been really fun and it's been really exciting to like shape people's stories over time together based on them having worked in one theater um, and you get to tell the stories of specific shows the stories of specific kinds of jobs like it just pulls together a lot of disparate elements um, and I was lucky to get to um, it was one of the only silver linings of 2020, um, I had time to write volume four. So there'll be six eventually, but I got to do that. And it's, it's honestly, it's become a different project over time. There's at least 15 interviewees who've sadly passed away since I started the process. And so I still have words of theirs and stories of theirs that like some of which, I'm lucky that we've you know, published and people have gotten to hear them, but also some that haven't come out yet that I have in the vault. So um, just that responsibility, like I don't take it lightly of having people's stories um, and getting to kind of deliver them onward.
0: I love that you talk to stagehands and, and door people and things like that, because they are the unsung heroes who have the stories that you, everybody wants to talk to, you know, the, the stars or the producers, but it's those people that you know keep the machine going i I love talking to them they probably had some great stories
1: yeah it's also i have kind of shaped each chapter so that each theater has its own narrator and often the narrator is the person who's like the house manager or a door person or you know someone who has spent so much time there who knows a lot of the stories through the years um and so yeah those people do it's the best stories come from folks who don't get interviewed as often, you know, yeah. and it, it's really wonderful to talk to them. That is very cool.
0: Um, thank you so much uh, for coming on today, Jen, and, and talking to me. And, and we could probably talk for another hour <laughs> on just a- everything and anything. And just on the, the musicals that no one knows alone, but um, thank you so much. Where can people find your book and where can they find the, the Jonathan Larson project and anything else about 54 or anything?
1: Yeah, um people can find my book um at good old Amazon. It's usually the easiest way to get it. It is in person at bookstores, but if you if you go to your local bookstore and it's not there. Usually Amazon will always have it. Um and Jonathan Larson Project you can listen to on all the streaming platforms. Um Ghostlight Records as, you know, they were part of making the album happen. You can find the album on their website. Um and 54 below, I also have to say over the course of the pandemic we've finally been able to start a streaming program. So whether you're in New York or not, you know, if you go to 54below.com We always have, Um, we've been able to stream at least, you know, a fourth of our shows, which is still just a huge number. Um, So check that out if you're in New York or outside New York um, and see what artists we have coming up.
0: That's awesome. Well, congratulations on everything uh, that you've accomplished and everything you're about to. and, And I look forward to see where everything goes. Um, with what you've done.
1: Thank you for such a lovely chat with someone who also knows all the obscure musicals that I know.
0: (laughs) No problem but before we go before we end this I always ask three questions of my guests just to get to know them even a little bit better. Um, There's no right or wrong answers though people are judgy. Um, Not me but the listeners. Um, So question number one softball uh, what creator or team within musical theater has had a great influence on you? you no know, it could be a composer, lyricist, director producer, actor, even stage manager it could be somebody famous or not famous like a teacher. Is there somebody who's had a, a big influence on you?
1: Yeah, I call her my Mary, my musical theater fairy godmother, but Mana Allen, who um, has been a mentor and friend to me for many years, um, she was in the original cast of Merrily and Smile. Um, she's a teacher and she's someone who, um, I don't think she's ever missed a single if it only runs a minute edition. Um, she's just one of those great people that passes on stories and knowledge to the next generation who has really influenced my life. Great answer,
0: great answer. <laughs> one po- One point, congratulations on that. All right, <laughs> question number two. Now, you know, my love of obscure musicals, you have the same thing you said your favorite is Merrily, right? What other what is another underappreciated musical that people should know?
1: you know, one I think about all the time, but it's tricky to tell people to know it because it's so hard to find it. Um, But there's a show called How Do You Do I Love You, which Maltby and Shire wrote when they were just getting started out. They're just getting started. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the songs are in their later, you know, song cycle, starting here, starting now. But How Do You Do I Love You starred Phyllis Newman. Um, It gave uh, Jonathan Tunick his start as an orchestrator. And it's the show that I discovered because I adore Maltby and Shire and their work um, and was like, wait, this is like the lost musical. It's about computer dating, but it was written in the 60s. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and so we we did a song from it in Runs a Minute um, that I, you can see that part of it on YouTube, listeners, if you wanna check that one out. And all of the material from it, I'm just like, this is so funny. It's like how to succeed style, but about dating, it's like Moppy and Shire tunes. Um, and they're kind of like, yeah, yeah, we wrote it when we were young and we like it, but it was a pathway elsewhere, it's not that great. And I'm like, no, this is the Great Laugh musical. <laughs> so I always do talk about that one. Um, try to see if you can find it, kids. <laughs>
0: Is, is there a recording of it, or is it just sheet no, music? No, um,
1: I mean, sir, there's, there's you know, non-commercial recordings if you can find them, but no, it was sadly never recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, Just Across the River, which ended up in Starting Here, Starting Now is from it. Um, one Step, which is in that, is from, so you can hear some of the songs in Starting Here, Starting Now, but really it's one of those shows that I keep waiting for it to get rediscovered.
0: As an offshoot, have you ever thought about putting together cast recordings of these shows that, uh, you know, nobody knows or don't have one yet?
1: I definitely have. And it's been like one of my favorite things to do at 54 Below is when we get to do like, you know, we did, um, I produced a Rachel Lily Rosenblum and Don't You Ever Forget It which was another musical that closed in previews and we did the first time it was ever performed since its final preview in the 70s was on stage at 54 Below. We put together you know this whole reinvention of it. Um, It's been a challenge because you know the cast recordings are so hard to make and even live recordings are so hard to make financially. So before the pandemic we were working on um, a couple of potential projects like that and we just have not been able to make them happen but my dream is at some point at 54 below to record shows like how do you do i love you and rachel lee rosenblum um in any way that they got recorded though i'll be happy if someone raises that money and figures it out before me i'll be cheering them on
0: <laughs> well, well listeners there you go we've we've got a challenge for everybody out there come on let's get together because i will play it on the station in a heartbeat obviously mm-hmm. any any cast recordings you can put together so let's see what we can do um, with this. Another, I'm going to give you an extra point for that. So <laughs> one and a half points for question number two. All right. Question number three. Um, this is the one that people find controversial. Food in the theater or cell phones in the theater, which is worse?
1: Food in the theater cell phones in theater. Do you know what's so weird? I'm one of those strange people that I'm way more affected by like people being rude sound-wise than I am visually. Okay, Like, I would much rather have someone silently sending a text than loudly talking to their friend. Obviously, you don't want either of those things. Sure. But, like, for some reason, I'm like, I can't hear that lyric or, like, I miss that line. Bothers me way more than, like, a light. Um, Again, I'm not condoning either of them. <laughs> but in that way, I think it depends on how you're using your cell phone. I'm going to get zero points for this answer because I'm cheating. But, um, yeah, like, honestly, if you're a person who, like, flips your phone over to look at the time quickly and it's annoying you shouldn't do that in the theater I'm way less annoyed than if you're loudly eating a bag of chips so like it's just a toss-up based on the behavior
0: (laughs) you know what I would have accepted both are terrible so (laughs) you know what a point anyways so congratulations (laughs) three and a half out of three points uh better than most so congratulations on that Jen thank you again so much for coming on to talk to me and um and in introducing yourself to the the world who might not know you. I know I know lots of people uh, have talked about you and know you in New York because um, I've heard about them talking about you in all positive ways. That's why I brought you on. Um, but now the rest of the world can get to know you and, and everything you've thank
1: done. Thank you, thank you so much for for the lovely interview and and such great like insights about all of it
0: awesome all right we were just speaking with uh jennifer ashley tepper here on be our guest on musical theater radio tune in next week as we'll be speaking with another guest or guests about their life love and passion that is musical theater i'm your host as always jean paul and until next time i'll see you when i see you